This is the Sustainable Goat Podcast. We look to nature for how we should interrelate to the world. All the answers are within nature if we take the time to listen. But what we have to find is a reasonable way how to handle plastic. You know, consumers expect more. They're expecting brands to be more sustainable. They're choosing sustainable brands. These are the stories and ideas from those that will define a generation. I'm your host, Steve Kassinem, and this is our planet in focus. Well, I'm stoked for this conversation. Thanks, guys, for hopping on. Cool. I'd love to start with just a little bit of background on both of you two and just kind of where you guys come from and what brought you to surfing in the first place. So I've been surfing quite a while now. I have a bit of an international background and I ended up living in the Netherlands for a number of years. And that's where I started surfing when I was about 12. Started boogie boarding in the North Sea. And then at 13, my dad got transferred to San Jose. He worked for a high-tech company. So once we moved over here, I picked up surfing proper and just never really stopped. Spent most of my college life surfing rather than studying. I went to school for marine biology. That's always been my passion. And during my college stint, I managed to secure a job for myself on a big purpose-built research and education sailboat in Monterey Bay. So I spent a number of years sailing around the bay, doing education during the summertime and research projects in the wintertime. And one of the big things we focused on was marine debris and the issues that we have with disposable plastics, single-use plastics, and essentially the disregard for the planet that most humans have simply by not knowing the effects of what they're actually using and discarding. So that was a big impact for me. Surfing the whole way through, I'd always bought used boards and fixed those. Just kind of did what I could with the equipment that I had. And then towards the end of the sailing project, my dad decided he was going to build a, a wooden kayak. And then we built a wooden rowboat as well. And in 2010, we took a trip down the Sea of Cortez from San Felipe down to La Paz. And I ended up getting laid off due to a number of different events. So when I came back, I didn't have a job. Just before we'd gone on the trip, I'd started building my first hollow wooden surfboard. Just I wanted to build my own board, did some research on it. Again, my dad was interested in building a stand-up paddle board. So I just kind of did research with him and then dove right into it, started building a board in my backyard. Had a ton of fun. The first board is rubbish in the water, but you know it, it got me hooked. The second board was absolute magic, and it just took off from there. So when I came back from my Baja trip, which lasted about four months, I didn't have a job to come back to. So I had to figure out real quickly what I was going to do. I'd spent enough time working in and around marine biology that as much as I loved it, I knew that wasn't a path that I wanted to follow. So I decided to give it a shot with a college friend of mine, and we started Ventana Surf Company. That was the first version. Started that in 2011, didn't last very long with him. It was not a good partnership. So once we dissolved that, I continued on my own for about two years, two and a half years, and then met David through a photo project he was doing. And I got into his brain. So he kept thinking about it. And a few months later, we got back in contact and he said, hey, do you want to try to make this something big? You want to try to blow up the company and you know, see where we can go with this brand. Big focus of it was David did a, a photo project where he photographed all the shapers and ding repair people in Santa Cruz. And they're all working with toxic foams and polyester resins and just very harmful things. And then he came to my shop and I was in an old barn in Watsonville, just 
whittling away at surfboards. So I think it made quite of an impression on him. What do you feel like it is about the ocean that kind of always drew you to it? I mean, you grew up around it, but what is it about that attraction to kind of continue to be around it? I mean, marine biology is kind of a a niche area of study and surfing. I mean, what's it's always the common thread's been ocean. So what kind of brought you to it and what's your love for it? Whew, I'm not sure. I knew I wanted to be a marine biologist when I was like four or five years old. And at the time I was living in Johannesburg in South Africa, I'd probably been to the ocean twice. I mean, I had, didn't really have very much exposure to the ocean. After that, we moved to Germany and I continued to just love it. Marine biology goes a lot further. There's also lakes and streams. It's just everything underwater. So in the Netherlands, all I did was fish every day, all day after school. It's, it's a great country for it. And I was always very interested in the marine life that was going on underneath it, more than just the ocean life. And then I did get some exposure to the beach later on while I was living in the Netherlands through a friend of mine in school. And that's when I really got hooked on the ocean proper. And it's, I don't know what the draw is. I've just, I mean, I have a little book that I made when I think I was four years old, where I essentially copied all the pictures in a, in a marine life picture book and wrote a little story next to it. It's, it's quite hilarious, actually. But it's, it's always <laughs> been amazing. in me. I don't know why. I don't know how. But that was always, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> I never deviated from that plan. That's incredible. And from a surfing perspective, too, I think that you get such a connection with the ocean too. I mean, do you remember the first time you surfed? Like properly stood up on the wave and surfed a wave? No, I can't honestly say I remember the first time I stood up. I can definitely remember the first time I went out on a boogie board and, you know, went beyond the breakers, which was pretty scary at 12 years old for me. <laughs> my dad did a lot of surf kayaking. So he's always been a big kayaker. I had my first kayak, I think, when I was three three or wow. four, I got my first boat. So, you know, we spent a lot of time on the water. He'd do a lot of kayak surfing while we lived in the Netherlands. And I'd always go with him. I lived there from eight to 13. So I did spend a lot mm -hmm. of time at the seashore. But, you know, when I was about 12, again, a, a friend of mine through the school said, Hey, why don't you come with me? Let's go boogie boarding. And I didn't know what the heck it was. We jumped in the water and he kept telling me to paddle out further, which was really scary. And then, you know, once I got past the breakers and really saw my first clean wave and actually managed to catch one of those. Yeah, my, my fate was sealed. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. And David, when, when did you first kind of get experience with the ocean? I grew up in the Silicon Valley. So I moved there from back east when I was four in 1972 and you know the cool kids were always over the hill in santa cruz and so whatever we had a chance to come over here we would high school and whatnot but i'd come over with my mom and my friends and and my brother and we would come over and boogie board and body surf and it just was looking around at the people that got to live in santa cruz and they were just whether they really were or not i don't know but it was like they were the coolest people in the world so when I finally got a chance as an adult to move here with my wife and kids, I did. And I've been here for the better part of 26 years, but I didn't start surfing until I was 40. So we, and I just, I mean, it became such an addiction that Martine, you know, when I did the photo exhibit for the Surfrider Foundation and met Martine, I, I was already just 
three leagues deep in surfing and just wanted to get connected to the community as much as possible. So that's when we decided to start the business together on a sustainable surf company. And I just have been surfing now for 13 or 14 years and absolutely love it still every day. It was out yesterday, going to go out today. Uh, but for me, it was it started with the cool kids in Santa Cruz and finally in my 40s and 50s being half as cool as they were when I was a kid. <laughs> what, is, what is it about surf culture? Because what I've noticed, I mean, grew up in Santa Cruz as well, but that surf culture kind of has its own culture. And it oftentimes is very communal based. It's very much just about, hey, getting out in nature and having a good time. What is it about surf culture that kind of drew you in? I don't know. I think maybe some of it is surfing isn't really surfing, right? Surfing is bobbing and paddling. It's the only sport where you're out and you might spend an hour and a half, two hours in the water and you have like a minute and a half of actual surfing time on a wave maybe two or three minutes if you're there's not a huge crowd out. And so I don't know, we, we just get a lot of time in the water to just kind of hang out and talk. And it, it's the place where you find out what's going on in the community and what new businesses are open and who's doing what. And so maybe there's something around that. But there's also this huge adventure part of it. And people get scared of sharks and not everybody knows how to swim. And being a part of that force of nature and doing it with other people has just create some community. And some of it was that surfers originally, for whatever reason, were rebels, right? They were shunned by society and they were the bad kids. And I don't know, there's always some of that that's left over that gives it that cool factor for some reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think you also get a really huge appreciation for the ocean when you're when you are surfing, because even when you're bobbing there and you go for a wave and it doesn't go well you're reminded very much of that power, especially if it's a decent wave. And I always found that part fascinating about it. Yeah. I mean, I take most of my waves on the head and maybe 10% of them where I'm actually surfing. And there are times out there, I mean, I've gotten stranded with a broken board a quarter mile out and it can be pretty scary. And I think people that are willing to brave that there's, for whatever reason, some cool factor that goes along with it. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And so when you met Martine, I mean, what was kind of your impression photographing this guy just making boards in Watsonville? I mean, again, back to that cool factor. I mean, he was doing, I took wood shop in middle school and I enjoyed it, but I'm not allowed to touch the tools. I have no real skill. I mean, I can't cut straight. I have no idea what I'm doing. And so just to see him and his artisanship, I mean, he's one of the best in the world was just incredible for me. The photo exhibit I did, I photographed surfboard shapers and ding repair people and fin makers over a period of four months from Half Moon Bay to Watsonville, some of the legends in the industry and some of the people that are just shaping in their backyard. And there's just an art to creating a surfboard. And everybody that does it, it's just something of beauty. What he was doing was on a completely different level. I mean, reclaim wooden surfboards with these incredibly intricate designs, using old world techniques, you know, even handmade tools with new technology lasers and things like that he's just at a different level than anybody else i photographed and he's doing it in a sustainable way so when i was photographing these other shapers i would go in and come out with a huge migraine and the resins are toxic some of the resin folks and shapers are getting cancer and he was doing it differently and i thought it would be great to start a more sustainable surf brand and so we've expanded the ventana brand beyond surfboards inspired by the work that martine does wow and Martine, so when did you start doing woodworking? I mean, that's board shaping itself, even with foam is a challenge in itself. Wood, 
is even more difficult. So when did that journey start for you? Very early. I mean, my journey with woodworking, again, started in South Africa from the moment I really have conscious memory I was woodworking in some capacity. You know, I got a whittling knife and, and some real basic tools when I was three or four years old, maybe. My dad made a lot of things. We didn't have very much in South Africa, so he built half of our house. He built all of our furniture. He made our first bicycles. So that was ingrained in me. Trips to the dump, we'd usually come home with more trash than we'd drop off just so we'd have something to fix and play with. And wood's always been a very, to me, a very easy medium to work with. I really enjoy it. I've never shaped a foam board. I I don't know. I don't think I'd do well. Obviously, it's a, there's a learning curve to everything. It's just a completely different way of making something. And for me, it's always been fun to start with little bits and put them together until you get to the final result rather than like carving. Right? I've never been a big wood carver where you take a block and you reduce it to the final outcome. I've always liked taking a bunch of little sticks and putting it together until it's the outcome. So it's kind of reverse of, of most surfboards, the way they're built. I did not take a wood shop class in middle school. I actually never took a woodworking class in my life. So it's all been, you know, just what I did on my own. And I never stopped. I mean, throughout my entire life, college, high school, everything, I was always making and building things. I got really into mountain biking for four or five years while I was in high school. I also went to high school in San Jose. I wasn't near the ocean. So didn't get to surf all that much. But I mean, the random things I built for my mountain bike, which would usually fall off or break within a few minutes, fine. I still built them and it's, you know, that's always kind of been in me. So it just continued. And with once I actually figured out that I could build a hollow wooden surfboard again, I can I could use my favorite materials to do, you know, to build something that I can actually go surf. That was that really sealed the deal on building this type of board. Yeah. And for people that don't know, I mean, how a surfboard is constructed, old school, new school, what's required to actually go surfing? Well, I mean, most of the old school surfboards, the original solid redwood boards, they were obviously just solid planks that had a little bit of shape cut into them, but mostly just pointed tail and a rounded nose. Not much beyond that. Then in the 1930s, the method that I'm using essentially got developed, which is the kookbox style from Tom Blake where you build essentially an airplane wing that can be sealed and then is ready to serve. That pretty much disappeared after World War II once foam and fiberglass became available. It's a much faster process to do a fiberglass board, to do a foam board. And essentially what's happening with a foam board is you get a big block or a block that's bigger than the board you want and you start carving down or shaping down until you get to your shape. So as long as you know when to stop, then you can finish up the board. But there's lots of changes that can be made during the whole process. David, so when it comes to kind of the surf industry and kind of just how how boards are traditionally made, sold, you know, I think a lot of people are kind of under the impression that surfing is kind of this really sustainable sport because you're always connected to the ocean. You just have this one surfboard, but there's actually a lot that goes into traditional surfboards. I mean, the whole industry, right? I mean, every industry, there's so much greenwashing that happens. And that was one of the motivations for when I photographed this exhibit, you know, it was all about showcasing the art of surfboards. And I didn't realize how unsustainable it was until I was in there watching all this foam particles flying in the air and realizing that the boards are basically styrofoam with toxic resins. 
Wetsuits are often petroleum-based. Shirt apparel is one of the the worst polluters in the world and users of water. And so as surfers or as anyone who claims to love the ocean, there's this dissonance. We talk a really good game about protecting the ocean and donating to ocean conservation and doing beach cleanups and whatnot. But the purchase decisions that we make don't match with our espoused values. And so that was one of the reasons for starting Ventana. We wanted to try and create a company that was as closely aligned with values around responsibility as we possibly could. But the truth is surfboards are toxic and disposable. And that's what we were trying to get away from. Mm. And so when when you guys actually started, a, when you designed the first board and kind of came out as Ventana, what was kind of the reception? He was making boards before we met. And mm-hmm. so I think his first board didn't surf very well. His second one was great. And then he started making boards for friends and realized he could make a business out of it. And so now the boards are, they're essentially art pieces and each side is different. So they're really two art pieces in one. And to be blunt, most of them hang on the wall. They're all built to surf. Many of them do get surfed. They're a little bit heavier just because they're wood, even though they're hollow core. And so they're faster and smoother. So they surf really well. They're super fun. Um, But, you know, we do a lot with interior design projects and interior designers and commercial design projects. And we're okay with that. Like we don't judge walls or waves is what we say. And it's fine either way. But the boards surf really well. And I've got three of them and I love them. They're just amazing surfboards. And a lot of people that buy them, you know, may or may not surf. But if they do, they can mind surf when they look at the board. And we hope that at some point they'll take it off the wall like a, you know, like a 1960s roadster that they take out every Sunday or something like that. But they're terrific boards, but they're also art pieces. Mm-hmm. I remember when we were we were talking a few months ago and we were talking about this idea that there is absolutely no waste with the board at all like any of the wood you guys maximize how and martine is kind of you know really behind that but then you guys put this into basically a product category so how have you guys expanded stuff to kind of show that there's you can use every single piece of everything else i mean the surf box is great yeah we have a save a surf box at this toolkit that we invented mostly martine invented and we try to use as much of the waste as we can we actually have two boards for sale right now that we call the boneyards and they're called the boneyards because They're made from scraps of other surfboards that he's built. So he saves all of the leftovers. And they're really cool boards because they have all these neat designs from other boards that he's made. But even the production of many of our boards use pieces from previous boards. And we try to use the scraps for all kinds of stuff. I mean, I'm sitting here looking at a pen right now that Martine made that's made. I don't know if you can see it, but I know they won't be able to see it on the podcast. But it's got this incredible inlay of leftovers from a different surfboard that are made from Santa Cruz Guitar Company production offcuts. And so if you go to ventanasurfboards.com, you'll see all kinds of different wood products. I mean, even these, we've got, I'm looking at right here, we have these little plant holders that are made from resin drippings from Locust Surfboards and Ashley Lloyd Surfboards with wood from the Western Flyer, which are leftover from surfboard production. And the Western Flyer is the boat that John Steinbeck took into the Sea of Cortez in 1940 and then wrote the log from the Sea of Cortez. So we have about 35 different partners that give us wood. So we're a wooden surfboard company at our core, but we don't actually buy wood. It's all donated. And then we've got a marketing machine that we market our business partners that give us wood and they essentially get marketing value for their trash. So I just mentioned Western Flyer Foundation and Santa Cruz Guitar Company. 
So I'm talking about these two partners that really just donated their trash to us. But yeah, we try to use every piece and we create products all the time that bottle openers, pens, pencils, whatever, that incorporate the wood that was from the leftovers from the surfboards. Wow. Well, and I, I think part of it too is this this story of the product. I think it enhances the story. I mean, each piece of wood can be integrated into a story into that board. And I find that a really fascinating part because you guys have in- incredible historic woods. Yeah. I mean, there are a few other wooden surfboard makers out there. And one of the ways we differentiate ourselves and I'm putting on my sales and marketing hat is that we have some exclusive wood that you can't buy anywhere. It's not available from anyone else. Santa Cruz Guitar Company, for example, gives us their offcuts and no other surfboard makers. You know, we've got bog wood from 5,000-year-old carbon dated from the UK from a company called Repercussion Drums. We've just got all these incredible one-of-a-kind pieces of wood that help differentiate us, not to mention the artisanship of Martine is at a completely different level in terms of beauty and quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've always done reclaimed with the surfboards. The first couple I built were, um, were mostly plywood just because I didn't have any tools at home. I mean, I built my first five boards with a handheld drill and a handheld jigsaw. Since then, we've come a long way. And as soon as I got a bandsaw and got something that I was able to process bigger pieces, I started going to the dump and picking up old redwood fence boards, etc., And pretty quickly after I'd started the first version of the business, I had a client or a gentleman who came by who saw a board at a shop in Santa Cruz who, you know, he talked story a little bit. And then he said, I think I've been saving a big pile of wood for you for the last decade. Wow. And then he went into it and it was historic mansion that he had one day access to that was getting demolished. And he managed to pick out every single floorboard, which were up to 20 foot lengths of clear grain redwood. So he saved this entire pile and we made a deal where I built him a longboard and I got to keep all the rest of the wood and, and essentially start building from that. <laughs> so when David and I met, my boards were at a pretty low price point. I mean, comparative to a foam board, they were already quite a bit higher, but I already considered them as art pieces. And the big question between David and I right from the get-go was, well, how do we increase the value of these boards? How do we make it so it's actually a sustainable business for mostly for me that I could make a decent living out of it. And my response was pretty simple. I mean, everybody can go down to the lumber yard and buy a nice piece of ebony and buy some exotic rosewoods and build something beautiful. But I think that the personal connection and the story is really what's going to set it apart. And I was always mentioning that, you know, I was using reclaimed woods or now I was using these old floorboards, but I wasn't that good about getting the story out. My social media presence before David was non-existent. I didn't do anything on marketing. I, that's just not my forte. I don't really enjoy it. So when David and I linked up, it was really a, an amazing way for me to also get the story out of all these pieces that I'm using. You know, it was always nice for me to sit in a wood shop and cut up these pieces and think, wow, 110 years, people walked across this floor. I wonder what the stories they could tell. But then, you know, David was actually able to bring that out to the general public and say, look at what we're doing. Look at these historic sources of wood. And I mean, we've sold so many different products of all varieties simply based on the material. You know, we've had a customer up in San Francisco who's bought kayaking accessories and I made him bookends and all kinds of things because he's a huge Steinbeck fan. So, you know, a lot of the mm-hmm. times it's the sources that draw them in at first and they say, hey, I want something made with that. 
Well, Martine said it's interesting because the meaning is everything for us, right? The stories are everything. And the interesting thing that we're finding is we've got a partner page with all the sources of our woods and wood from the original Hollywood Bowl and the original Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk from 100 years ago. And it's just like the list is unbelievable. But then we also have customers that want their own meaning in the board beyond what we have, which generally our list is meaningful for customers, especially in California. But then they'll bring us things. Martine built a board where he incorporated wine barrel oak from, I think it was probably from the 50s or 60s, but from the winery where the couple that was commissioning the board got married. And wood from the woman's original home, I think in Minnesota, that was salvaged from her yard. Like just people come with this or abalone inlay that of an abalone that the person Frito for up in Mendocino Coast years and years ago and was holding on to. So it's this combination of historic and exotic reclaimed and salvaged wood, plus the incorporation of pieces that are meaningful for the customer. And so they get this art piece that's surfable, that's just dripping with meaning and that they look at and it's an heirloom and, and they just love. So it's one of the, that's the thing that I love most is just seeing people create meaning out of these surfboards for themselves. Mm, yeah. And Martine, what are some of the meaningful pieces of wood that you've worked with kind of through this time period and what you have now in the shop? There's so much different cool stuff. I love the Santa Cruz Guitar Company wood. They use so many different exotics. They do a lot with reclaiming as well. I mean, Richard will fly across the country if he hears about some important or some old structure that's coming down. He'll go check it out and he'll get massive mahogany beams from you know an old church that was demolished in Rhode Island or whatnot. So then getting access to that is always really fun. I do pick a lot of wood from the beaches, you know, I'll go, especially after these storms, I'll go get redwood burls or any other types of interesting wood. I use a lot of wood from my property, manzanita burls, or even just, you know, if I'm going through loading up my firewood for the night, if there's an interesting piece, I'll throw it to the side, bring it to the shop and make something out of it rather than burning it. So I don't have anything exactly specific that's incredibly meaningful. There are definitely certain types that I like working with more than others. And a lot of that is just the interesting grain or the interesting colors that it has. And what do you think is important about this idea of taking reclaimed wood and actually telling that story of the circularity is something I think oftentimes we get a little caught into building the new so quickly that we almost forget about the stories of the old. And so when it comes to that sustainability model, I mean, where does that education fall in, in educating the consumer on like, hey, these historic buildings, these things that come down, we understand that maybe maybe a newer building is is needed, but how can we take all of the pieces of this old building and use it for something else? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's a huge part in me that I really enjoy about Ventana surfboards is being able to show people how much trash isn't actually trash. It just takes time and effort to reuse it. One of the examples I always use, a washing machine in Mexico isn't dead until the drum has completely burned out from the fires that they've had on the beach for decades, right? Every single piece gets used and used and used until there's nothing left to use. And that's what I see a lot with, especially when I was going to the dump, picking through, I mean, people redo their decks and throw away perfectly good two by six redwood planks that are huge. There's nothing wrong with it. Maybe a support member failed underneath and they scrap the entire thing and build new. So that's been really important for me, especially also coming from the education background or at least conservation education background. 
people don't realize how much they're throwing away before they, they fix it or they do something about it. I'm not an appliance guy, but I fixed every single appliance in my house, save for my refrigerator, because David gave me a new one. Um, because there's all these little things that even technicians won't attack because it might seem like too much work or if you figure it out hourly it's going to cost more than a new appliance well for me i don't want to haul that appliance away i'd rather figure out how to fix it and make it good and wood is the same way i mean there are wooden structures that are thousands of years old that are still standing and that are still solid to me it's just if the material isn't completely deteriorated then use it use it again those trees have been cut the quality of wood you buy nowadays is rubbish compared to the old stuff. So the more you can really use the old stuff, the old trees, it makes it a little less painful to know that that was an ancient tree that was cut down. At least it's not just getting chipped up into wood chips and going into somebody's yard. It can actually be repurposed and do something real interesting with. And I do that with everything. I mean, resin waste, metal waste. I, I collect hardware from everywhere. <laughs> I built myself a small power boat over the last few years, a little 15-foot skiff. I did all of the, in, you know, it's got beautiful upholstery on the inside, and all the upholstery was built from Tapui tents that were supposed to go in the landfill. It's things that I just, I can't bear seeing all these things being wasted when there's so much life left in them, maybe not as originally intended, but with a little bit of creativity, you can go a long way with these materials. And I've always been under the impression that rather than using a disposable plastic, I'd, I'd much rather have a gallon of fuel for my car to burn or petroleum to make a heart valve or a pacemaker or some medical device that's actually going to help people rather than an eight ounce plastic cola bottle that gets used for four minutes and then is recycled and takes a lot more energy to go that way. Mm -hmm. So for me, I mean, it's ingrained. It's, it's how I live. I think that's a really good way to look at it. Yeah. It's always the balance of what could be done with it. Why are you making straws? Why are you making eight ounce, 10 ounce, tiny little bottles that just go away? But they don't, right? I mean, it's using a petroleum and it's incredibly intensive to recycle it or to repurpose it. So for me, it's always watching on the back end as well as the front. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like that out of sight, out of mind concept where if some they put it in the trash and it's almost like it just disappears somehow magically but it goes somewhere yeah and even the fact that you guys take all that waste that you guys even create from shavings and stuff like that and make something else so tell me just a bit about the surf box david just in general about what it is what the purpose is all of it i'm showing you one right now on the video that we have the history of this thing is there's there's a long history some of it was actually discussed martin and i we haven't done this in a while but we used to like to surf at night a lot so the two of us would go out alone under the full moon. It sounds very romantic <laughs> in, Cap in, in Capitola. And we would planning the company together, you know, in the waves. And one of the things I was telling him a story about, my kids and I all took lessons at the same time. They were eight and 10 and I was 40 almost. And so <laughs> they stuck with it. And one time I went out, took my board out in the ocean and the fin came off. It was a long board with a single fin. It was because one of my kids, I think, had taken the fin screws out of my board. And so I was out there just floundering because I didn't have a fin. And so I said, hey, we need this. We need some way for me to always have fin screws so that in the car I can or wherever I can put a fin back in if I need to. And so Martine invented this little scraper, wax comb, leash cord, fin screw tool and it did pretty well. And then I said, hey, we also need a wooden box so that our wax doesn't melt in the car. 
And so I was just thinking he would create a box with maybe a sliding lid for wax. And so he came back, I don't know, like a week later with this product that it's I, every time I look at it, I still laugh because it's so amazing. It's made with the trash of four companies. It's a box that's big enough for a big bar of wax. So we sell this big giant bar of wax. And, and so it fits that. It's got wood from Honduras Mahogany, guitar neck offcuts from Santa Cruz Guitar Company. The one I'm holding, I think, has oak from a cabinet shop's leftovers. It's got a wax comb scraper as the lid. There are fin screws for FCS, Futures, and Longboard fin screws, so all the fin screw types you need. Inside, is we usually have our wax and a sticker. We have a guitar pick that we put in there that we cut ourselves from card keys from one of the hotels in town, the Dream Inn. They had a bunch of leftover card keys. And the reason we do that is because we use guitar wood, so we thought it'd be fun to just show how you can even repurpose a hotel card key or a credit card. Inside the lid is an Allen wrench for the fin screws that's in there with magnets. And then if you put the Allen wrench at an angle, in this case, 37 degrees, and we have a little guide on the box, it's a sundial that's calibrated for Santa Cruz. So if you know where north is, it'll tell the time. And if you know the time, it'll tell you where north is. And then it also has a leash cord, which is a leftover from a different company's production called Cords Mugs, and then a bottle opener. And he's also now started adding a ruler to it, laser engraved, and not entirely sure what we're going to do with the ruler, but there's something. So anyway, it's basically the trash of four companies into this toolkit that keeps your wax from melting and has all the little tools you need, like a Swiss Army knife. It's And we sell these all over the world with free engraving and custom calibration for the sundial. But it's just a really fun example of what you can do with trash. Yeah. Well, and you guys also work with a lot of different artists too, Mm -hmm. kind of across the board on different projects. What are some of the projects that you guys have loved to work on? We do a few different things. One is that all of our shirt designs, we're actually doing this thing called reclaim flannels right now. So we get really, really high quality flannels. Part of the circular economy is trying to reuse as much as you can. So we have flannel shirts, which are obviously great when you're out checking the waves on a cold day. But then we have art on the back from a guy named Tiago Bianchini in Brazil who created a Monterey Bay art design for us. And we sell that on the the reclaimed flannels and on some shirts and stickers and things like that. But we work with artists all over the world. So Switzerland, Israel, Brazil, all over the United States, a lot locally here in Santa Cruz. And then we've also done collaboration projects. So the last one we did was called the Ventana Fin Artist Project. So Martine cut fins, single fins, out of wood that was used for the rebuilding of the Steinbeck boat, the Western Flyer. And then we had an application process where artists from all over the U.S. applied to be part of this project where we would send them a fin. They would embellish it however they wanted. So we had people doing Posca pens and acrylic and wood burning and inlays and all sorts of interesting things. They send them back. Martine glasses them. And we have different stands that customer can select. So wood from wine barrels, wood from the old Moffett Field hangar over in Silicon Valley, wood from the Hollywood Bowl, wood from the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk, whatever, as a stand for the fin. They could be glassed onto a board, but they're really art pieces. And then we share the revenue of the sale with the artist, and most of the revenue goes to them. And then we're promoting that artist, they're promoting us. And so it's great for marketing. It's great as a showcase of reuse. It's a great art piece for a customer. And it's a really fun project because the artist gets to do something that they've never done before, which is paint or design something on a fin. And we've done that with body surfing hand planes as well. 
And they're all one of a kind. People love them. And we'll probably do more like that. But we love helping other small businesses and especially helping artists. In addition, we have a featured artist program. So right now we have a stained glass artist named Haven Livingston. We also have a featured author program, Sea Hugger in Half Moon Bay. The woman that founded that created a book called The Littlest Sea Hugger. And so we've showcased that. So for us, it's all about the collaborations. Yeah, one collaboration, I think, is a huge part in solving some of the problems that we face as business and society and communities. I think collaboration is a really important piece. Why is it so important to you guys? For us, collaboration is important just as a marketing tool. It's really a way for small businesses and artists to come together and amplify their impact and compete with larger brands. So it's important from that perspective. It's also important to us because we also use it as an opportunity to show other people that we work with how to up their game around sustainability. So we work with only artists and small businesses that reflect our values. Artisanship, responsibility, adventure are our values. And so we try to make sure that everybody we work with reflects those values in some way. But then we show them how to up their game even further by taking really meaningful trash or pieces of wood and turning it into something great and doing it in a way that's actually lower cost, right? Because that's the thing that we, we haven't really talked about, which is if you're a wooden surfboard company and you get all of your wood for free, then your cost of goods is significantly lower than buying new wood that is nowhere near the quality or doesn't have the story of salvaged and reclaimed wood. So there's an economic thing as well that's important and helping our collaborators understand that is good for their businesses as well. And so that's another reason why it's important to us. Mm, That's huge. And Martine, when you look to design a board, where do you even start? Because they are pieces of art. What does the process even look like to make one of these boards? Can be quite interesting. There's two ways to go about it. You know, I've done, I'm on my 141st board right now. So I've done a lot of different designs. I also try to make everyone at least slightly different. I rarely ever produce the same board if I've ever actually replicated something. So sometimes a customer comes to us and say, I love your rising sun design. Let's do something with that. If they have specific sources of wood, then it comes back to me to figure out if I have enough of that wood to make it happen. If I don't, how can I still incorporate it and get to the final result that they're looking for? Or the other option is that customers kind of come to me with an empty canvas and they say, well, I'd love to have some of these types of wood incorporated, but I have no idea what you want to make. So come up with a design. And then a lot of it, it's virtually all determined by the woods that I'm going to use. Because we do everything with reclaimed and salvaged woods, I'm not getting 10 foot long, six inch wide, one inch thick planks that I just get to take the meat off of what I need to use. I get small scraps and bent pieces of wood and busted pieces of wood. So it's then it almost kind of turns into just making a big pile on the floor and staring at it until it tells me what it wants to be. And that's unfortunately, I don't have any better way to describe it other than that. Like I'll literally just look at a whole bunch of wood until something that seems interesting comes out at me and then I'll kind of run with that and and it gets changed by the time I'm actually putting the board together because there's too much of one wood or not enough of the other and then it gets shifted back and forth so it's it's either a customer's design that I try to match with the woods that I have or the woods that I want or it's the wood telling me how it wants to look in the end 
Wow. That's fantastic. What is your favorite part of the process when you're actually building the board? Mm, I think the initial composition and putting the decks together, as well as the delivery handshake, goodbye, enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) I love seeing it in people's houses. I mean, the, the wedding board that David referred to a couple of times, the wife commissioned it and they were essentially redoing their vows 25 years later. So she had this board commissioned with incredibly meaningful parts. I mean, I inlaid a a fabric ribbon that was from their wedding in some capacity. And then I showed up the day of their renewal of their vows, put the board in the house on the stand. And then essentially we opened the door for the husband together and his jaw dropped. And I mean, you don't often see a 50-year-old man burst out in tears, but It tends to happen when we deliver boards. So that's a really satisfying thing is to see the people finally take delivery of the actual board. Another big thing that we always offer to our customers, if somebody commissions a board, they can come into the shop and spend some hours with me and actually work on the board. So one of the past boards I did was a big kelp forest board. And the customer had at that point, 11 year old daughter. And they came in the first couple of times to help design the board. And then I said, well, you know, come back and we'll do this. And the board ended up taking almost a year to build. But I think almost every single time I worked on it, their daughter was here and was working with me to build the project. And I would just put it off until their availability was there that she could come in and help because I could see that it was so meaningful for her. And now they have this beautiful art board hanging up in their house that their daughter essentially built half of it with the woods from her family out in Minnesota, Michigan, wherever. So it really connects all these things to it. And it's it gets people really emotionally attached. And I think even though it's not directly part of the building, that's still one of the best parts of the build is having the customer involved like that. Mm, Yeah. And you asked about collaboration, too. The daughter, the 11 year old, actually was one of our fin artists as well. So she painted oh, yeah. a humpback whale on one side and and then Martine glassed it and the, the customer then got the fin as well. And so now they have a painted fin with wood from the Western Flyer boat that their daughter painted as part of the work that she was also doing to build the board. I mean, it's just, I mean, sometimes it'll bring a tear to your eye to watch like a family bond over building something with their hands, which just doesn't really happen much anymore. We have a little feature about them on our Vimeo channel, a video, and it's just every time I, I've watched it over and over and every time I watch it, I just could smile because watching watching a family, my daughter built a board with Martine for her high school project as a senior. And that's just so satisfying to see. Yeah. What is it about building something with your hands? Because I mean, there is, there is such value in that. How does that change how we've kind of progressed through society? I feel like we don't build anymore. That's something that's always kind of bothered me that people don't take the initiative to even try. You know, and one of the big comments that I always get is, well, if I tried that, you wouldn't even want to see the result. Well, no, I would. But I'd also like to see the result of number two and number three and number four. I mean, my first board, as I said, it surfs about as well as a piece of plywood with not good shape could, but I didn't <laughs> quit at that. I kept going, right? And it's the new generations, the younger generations. I mean, everything is instant gratification. They, you know, they want to post something and they want to see 50 likes in the first five minutes. And if it's not, then it just didn't work. Most things that you make with your hands take a lot of time, take a lot of dedication to actually get it done. I guess it's that patience. 
And that attention to what you're actually doing and focusing on the outcome and enjoying the journey to get there. You just don't see it very much anymore. And for me, that's, that's, that's a big thing. Fair enough. And have you built to this point what your dream board is, your favorite board? It was the second board I ever built. That's still the best surfboard I've ever surfed. I still build that shape. The last board I built for myself and the last one I built for David, they're both the same shape. They've been refined a lot over the past 12 years. But I, to me, they they surf really well, but they don't have the soul of the original one. Like The original one is still my favorite, best-performing board. I do have another board I really do enjoy. It's an odd board. It, I generally surf it without a fin, so it's pretty tricky to surf, but I really love taking it out. The older I'm getting, I have a five-year-old daughter. I spend a lot of time at work. I have a lot of things going on. I'm not surfing as much anymore, but I've kind of converted that into, you know, now I'm building boats for myself because I really enjoy the time out on the boat and I can easily take my family out on the boat. So it's kind of shifted towards that. But I still, you know, every board I build, I definitely, as David likes to say, I mind surf it and, and build it with a purpose. I mean, there's usually a wave that I have in mind where the board would be perfect. Yeah. And what is it about the surf in Santa Cruz specifically? Because it is kind of like a surfing mecca. And I think you get this colliding of culture of longboarders, shortboarders, paddleboarders. I mean, kind of a more diverse kind of surfing community, I think, in Santa Cruz is seeing those waves. What is it about that community that's so special? I mean, so first of all, surfing in North America, the entire continent started in Santa Cruz at the river mouth next to what's now the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk from in the late 1800s. Hawaiian princes were here going to school. They made big hundred pound boards, which they've actually since found and they brought here for a display. Wait, they found them? Yeah, they were in a, a museum or a back room or something in Hawaii. And they brought, I think two of the three of them, and they brought them here and they actually had a parade to bring them in. And they had the Santa Cruz Museum of Art and History had a big display and it was really, really cool. But surfing started here. And I know there was a lawsuit years ago with Huntington Beach around who could use the name Surf City. But Santa Cruz is Surf City. I mean, we have more breaks, more variation up and down the coast, in town, out of town, coves, quote unquote, sort of secret spots that are just unmatched anywhere, probably in the world. I'm sure somebody, I was just in Portugal at Aracera and I know they've got some, some of the similar sort of situation that we have in California, but it's an absolutely incredible, varied place for surfing. And that's why, I mean, there's longboard waves and shortboard waves and depending on the direction of the swell, it's different. You know, this last week was some of the biggest waves we've ever had. And it was just Breaks were lighting up all over the place that usually don't break. It's just, obviously, there was a lot of damage, which is sad. But it's just the variation of surf that we have here. And the history is so incredibly rich. That's, I mean, for me, that's that's what it's all about. I'm sitting here while we're talking, watching a cam. We never named surf spots, even though they're maybe the most popular in the world. But I'm watching one down the street for me, and it looks incredible right now. So I think we may have to cut out early so I can get in the water. Perfect. <laughs> well, definitely. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why Santa Cruz is such a surfing mecca as well, I mean, it's it's the entire Monterey Bay. You can, you know, you have Mavericks on the north end of it, essentially, and then you have Cowles Beach and these smaller breaks that are so conducive to learning and to beginners. We have every type of wave you could ever imagine. I mean, there are waves that barrel as hard and as shallow as Indonesia, and we have slow rolling waves like Waikiki. Mm -hmm. And it's 
I don't think there's necessarily a good answer for it. I mean, why do we have thousands upon thousands of dolphins here? And why do whales frequent this area? I mean, bathymetry underwater is so unique. You know, we have the deep Monterey Bay Canyon, which comes right up into Moss Landing, goes down to over 15,000 feet within a few miles offshore. And then on the north and the south side of that, you have, you know, essentially the flats and you have all these sandbanks and, and different bathymetric features along with this huge bay that you can see from space that just kind of attracts waves from every single direction. We have a reasonably good climate. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. You know, it's just so very accessible to everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's what definitely makes it a, a special place. That's for sure. I'm just happy that Martin got to say bathymetry on the podcast. <laughs> So if you don't know what that means, Got if you it. don't know what that means, look it up. Yeah. <laughs> so final question for you guys. What's your favorite place to enjoy nature, whole world? For me, it's I live on the west side of Santa Cruz, the lower west side, which has got, you know, all kinds of surf breaks up and down right here, right across the street. I surf just a few blocks away from my house and then surf back home. And I walk up and surf back. That's my favorite place in the world. Martin. I don't know if I could put that concise of an answer onto it. <laughs> I love Santa Cruz. I love this area. I live a little south of Santa Cruz up in the hills. So my, my property is quite a bit of nature itself. I think I've tried to pull out of Santa Cruz three or four times in the last 24 years I've lived here and I've never been successful at it. So I'm, I'm pretty confident in saying that, yeah, Santa Cruz is my favorite place to spend time maybe not santa cruz proper but the whole area around here the monterey bay in general i haven't found any place that i'd rather be yet that's fantastic well thank you guys for taking the time and just chatting on the podcast talking surfing it's always great to just see what you guys are up to just because it's such an iconic i think product that is such a piece of art and has a lot of meaning behind it and the more people that know about it i think the more people will kind of look around at the stuff that they have and kind of be like, hey, how can I bring more meaning to all the stuff that's around me? So how can people get more connected with you guys and check out what you guys are doing, look into working with you guys? If we had an hour, I would list all the places where you can find right? us. You know, <laughs> at Ventana Surfboards on Instagram and on TikTok. It's, we're at Ventana Surfboards or at Ventana Surf and almost everything you can imagine and some you may not even know about. But VentanaSurfboards.com is the best place to go to go check out what we're doing. And I just want to thank you. I mean, we absolutely love what Sustainable Goat's doing. And we think you've got a really great focus and direction. And we're really honored to be part of it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sustainable Goat podcast. I'm your host, Steve Kastenham. With each episode, we can further define what it means to create a truly sustainable and resilient future. I think the new status is to show that, that you actually care. You want to drive change and you want to be part of a sustainable future. People fight for what they love. Let's really all start for a small but significant shift in the way we live, we consume, and we plan our life. Join us at SustainableGoat.com.